0: Uncensored series, and I'm on week number two of an honest conversation on biblical sexuality. I thought it would be two weeks, it will be three weeks. And um, the reason is your response, um, the depth of this subject, and everybody listen to me. I said last week, we are going to take a deep dive, a subject like this cannot be preached in an echo chamber where everybody already agrees. And we're not here to hype. Listen to me. We are not preaching this to remind a bunch of conservatives in the South who wins or who's right. We're coming with a much more sensitive approach to God's Word, understanding that there is a lot of hurt around this issue even inside these four walls in this sanctuary. And when we, as, as I broached the subject and even began last week, I knew it would be two full heavy-duty weeks. And, and Monday or Tuesday, just in prayer and study, there's no way I can wrap up today. Now, the problem is I hate that these three sermons are preached on three different days because they all are strung together. And um, I'm aware of this is going to be somewhat monotonous and boring. This is going to feel like a seminary class. It's designed that way. I'm not here to hype or, you know, show you any entertaining skills I have as a speaker. We're digging into the Word in an area that we must contend for truth in a loving, tender that's a sensitive way. so I don't I normally like to get up here and free will it and uh, preach and that's my, that's how I'm wired. but the last two weeks I've really pretty much by manuscript just written out what I want to say so that I don't get off on any rabbit trails and I don't mistake or slip up in the interpretation of scripture. And if you can, and I, I know many of you listened to last week more than once and some of you more than twice. It was that kind of word and this week will be the same. And so we're in the uncensored series. Remember, if you if you haven't been around, the whole uncensored series comes from God told Adam and Eve you can have anything in the garden but that tree. Satan said Did God really say? Eve said, yes, he did. Satan said, well, I don't think that's really what he meant. There's something even better that you can have if you violate or you, you, he talked her in to thinking that's not what God meant. And in a 360 degree HD view, that is what's happening in our world everywhere you look about everything did god say and some of us as believers we don't even know did did god say that or did confucius you know and we're not able to say yeah god said that so the next step well that's not what he meant we're not even able to defend that and you go okay why are we why are we preaching this there's there's several reasons number 1 we all need a, a a refresher on biblical sexuality, all of us. And I'll talk about this next week. And listen, in a world, in a culture that worships sex, sex brings more death than it does life. And it was designed originally to recreate. It was designed to bring life. And when sex is worshiped as a false god, it brings death. And that's what we're dealing with. And that's why we have millions of babies that have been aborted. And others who were born but have not been raised. in the nurture and the admonition that they were created to be raised in. The second reason that we're, we're speaking on a subject like this is that all of us, are tr- the culture is trying to brainwash us. And our children, and many of us adults as believers, the message is everywhere. And we need to see what does God's word really say? And when you look at the word, remember last week I said, you don't know what balance is until you look at the plumb line. The mason workers have built some Brick walls, and I've watched them drop the the plumb line this way to make sure as they're stacking them, it's straight. And I've watched them take the string and with the the laser beam, make sure every brick is level. And we're in that place now as a culture where we've built a leaning tower of Pisa in our worldview, in our cultural view. And what this generation, it's this generation without this truth will, there won't be many more generations in this culture because when you worship sex as a God and it brings death, eventually it ends the culture as we know it. And so that's why we come with this teaching. And we look, we're we're looking at five different passages of scripture. We got one in last week and we're doing four more this week. So, I'm going to move as quickly as I can, and um, let's pray. Father, your word is, is, is life. Your word is life. Open our hearts and our minds. We don't want just us shoulders up or just us shoulders down. We want our head and our heart engaged right now. Anoint me. Deputize me, Lord, to just be the newspaper boy that drops the paper, And we'll read it today and see your heart and your love and your plan for mankind to flourish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Leviticus 18, 22 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, Both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their heads. The context of this passage is that the children of Israel are going into the promised land. God wants them to have a different culture, a different ethical vision, different practices that make them holy and set apart from the nations that God is driving out because of their debauchery and depraved lives. Depravity is what we deal with in the Old Testament, and that's why it was like animalistic culture. They were more like animals than preacher, uh, than, than, than humans and people. And, and depravity leads to death. And God knows, I can put you in that new place, but without you understanding what makes things holy, you'll become just like them, and you will self-destruct. The big idea in Leviticus is the word holy or holiness. It occurs 87 times in the book. Holiness is the book's overarching theme. And the whole of Israel's worship is to restore or to discover the holy, to lead the culture of depravity. God wants them to start over with him as their holy God, worshiping him. So, holy people with priests who are holy, wearing clothes that are holy in a holy land using utensils, utensils. "...that have been set apart and made holy, celebrating holy days, living by holy law, that they may be a kingdom of priests and become a holy nation." The second half of Leviticus from chapter 17 onward is sometimes called the Holiness Code after the introduction because it details how the Israelites were to live as holy people. So we see in Leviticus 19 verse 2 the underlying theme and the command is this. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. These verses have generated in Leviticus some level of controversy, a lot of controversy. But there are two main questions that you have to ask to get to the issue of same-sex relations in the book of Leviticus. Number one is, what is the issue that is being forbidden in this text? And number two is it still relevant for us today? The progressive position, those that would affirm same-sex relations, the progressive position says this, and I'm gonna give three responses to what they say, but their position on these two passages of Scripture is the argument says basically the Old Testament passages don't apply to us today because we're in the new covenant. Let me offer a few reasons to explain why I don't think the progressive issue can hold up on this subject with these verses. Number one, we don't just throw out the Old Testament. There is no indication in the New Testament that the book of Leviticus should be treated as obscure, peripheral, or irrelevant. Listen closely. Jesus referred to Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, more than any other verse in the Old Testament. The New Testament refers to it ten times. Both Peter and Paul quoted Leviticus as part of their summons to holiness. The authors of the New Testament did not hesitate to turn to Leviticus to find instruction and exhortation for godly living, and consistently they did this. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians as he condemns incest. The New Testament authors seem to find Leviticus' morals still binding on Christians, and the sexual ethic of the Old Testament still carries through to the New Testament. Example, when you look at this passage in in Leviticus 18 and chapter 20 that I read a minute ago, it's almost treated in that section like the Sermon on the Mount of the Old Testament. By that I mean it's like a block of teaching that is fundamental and therefore is constantly referred back to as necessary and fundamental teaching. You've got to read the whole context. It's not just homosexuality or same sexual relations that, that's in this. It, it includes things like incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying. Things start hitting a little closer to home. Taking the, name, the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches or necromancers. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is like the Old Testament Sermon on the Mount for moral law. Many of the prohibitions that we know are explicitly, many of these are explicitly forbidden in the New Testament. The areas of sexuality come from this very passage and we don't throw them out because they're found in the Old Testament or in the book of Leviticus or in the holiness code. Now, Christians have always said that when you read the Old Testament, you have to read it through a lens of the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. I wish I had 30 minutes to break this down, but there's when you read it, most everything in there, well, everything in there falls under one of these categories. But because the ceremonial law, which is much of the temple and sacrificial system, has been fulfilled in Jesus, it's no longer relevant to us. How many of you are we thankful for Jesus? The curtain is torn. We don't have to go through a year and wear special clothes to be able to come into his presence. So most of that is, is irrelevant now. The civil laws are no longer relevant to us either because we're not a theocracy. So the death penalty and those sorts of things don't apply. Although sometimes I wish we were in a theocracy and I wish I could pick who we get to kill, wouldn't you? But we're not. And that stuff's not relevant anymore. But, please hear me, but the moral law of God is true for all people in all places in all times, and this is what carries from the Old Testament to the New Testament. To say this passage doesn't apply because it is the Old Testament, it, it isn't responsible scriptural interpretation. Okay, the second response I have for the pre- progressives who say it's the Old Testament's irrelevant. Secondly, they claim that this passage is opposing these relationships because they are feminizing the passive partner in the sexual encounter. The claim here is that there is a low view of women, but I don't think this works either in light of Genesis chapter 1, which is what this verse seems to be alluding to as well. If you read Genesis 1, the creation account, in light of other Near Eastern creation accounts, you would realize this is the only account, the only Bible, if you will, there's no other religion, This is the only one where women are given the dignity of being created equal image bearers of God and co-created as equals with men. Can I get a witness? So it's strange to me that God holds women in such high regard. And then in the next passage, low regard is saying if you become like a woman, that you're committing some sort of cultural sin. I don't think that carries enough weight. In fact, that's a very porous argument. Thirdly and lastly, the idea that this is coercive sex, this is sexual abuse, this is not monogamous, respectable, that he's addressing here. The problem with this passage, and I don't think you can say that, this is talking about homosexual behavior in the victimization category, is that in this account, both people were put to death. The Mosaic Law prescribed no punishment for a woman who was forcibly seized or sexually abused by a man. The man was punished, but not the victim. There's a lot we could say about that. Now, Leviticus is trying to do more than outlaw unwanted same-sex assault or behavior. When homosexuality is condemned among the Assyrians or Hittites, it is often condemned for a specific sort of act, not the general term that is used here. And yet there is no suggestion in Leviticus that we're talking about this narrow type of exploitive behavior. The phrase, as with a woman, is significant because it calls to mind Genesis 2 where God made the first woman from the side of man and he lay with her as a unique complement so I don't think that the feminization of the partner works either. And we'll look at that also in, in a little bit in Romans where, in the New Testament where Paul addresses that again. So when I look at this passage and I consider the progressive arguments, the affirming um, people, I don't think they carry enough weight to overturn Listen, what the text simply says in English or in the original language, which is the traditional teaching on this passage. Now, big, big deal right here. Before we turn to the New Testament and look more at more recent clear statements on the subject, I wanna take a moment and deal with same-sex relations in the Greco-Roman world at the time of Christ and the Jewish and Christian understanding of what was happening at that time That the new testament was written it's very important because many progressive positions are this well when they wrote the bible they didn't know about orientation that people were born this way number two they didn't know about same-sex committed monogamous respectful mutually loving relationships let me acknowledge that yes There was a diversity of all kinds of relationships when it came to sexuality around the time of the writing of the New Testament. There were uh, master-slave sexual relationships that were abusive and exploitive. There was prostitution. There was gender confusion related to sexual activity. And there was pederasty, where pedophiles were known. And there was also committed stable, loving, long-term, monogamous relationships at the time the Bible was written in the Greco-Roman world. Now, there was a reality and a recognition of consensual, committed, same-sex relationships. Time out. What I'm building here is a case that the, the affirming world today says... The Bible is irrelevant because they don't. We know more than they did then. Everybody tracking with me? You're born this way. They didn't have mutually respectful, loving same-sex relationships. Trust me, that's a strong argument, but it is not fair or factual. It is simply untrue to say that they were not known about enduring same-sex love there are several big books that are very thorough related to this topic C.A. Williams Roman homosexuality from Oxford Press and just a side note it's interesting that these books are virtually taken out of print and that they cost how much is that one 902 would anybody like for us to place an order if you'll give us a deposit we'll get some of them in for you But seriously, it's very interesting. K.J. Dover, Greek homosexuality from Harvard University Press, listen to this. They make the claim, even though they would both fall into the progressive, affirming category, that there was enduring, same-sex, loving relationships at the time of the writing of the New Testament. Now, this is, I just want to go overboard in justifying what I'm saying. This is not a preacher up here trying to whip up a southern conservative crowd. Plutarch was a pagan moralist in the first and second century and extended treatment on love. He did an extended treatment on love called the dialogue of love in Moralia, like morals, Moralia. It's an extended discourse of love comparing homosexual love with heterosexual love. He ultimately lands on heterosexual marriage but talks about many in his day who thought that same-sex love was actually a beautiful thing. And he also, in this dialogue, makes a distinction between homosexual sex that is just mere pleasure and base and unworthy and a homosexual practice that is beautiful, courteous, and rooted in relationship. Plato's Symposium, in his work called Protagoras mentions two men who were lovers. They were lovers for more than 10 years after they've both reached full adulthood. Agathon was a famous Greek poet known for his physical beauty. He was also known for his dressing like a woman and having a lifelong consensual love relationship with a man named Pausanias. There was a Greek philosopher named Parmenides, 65 years old, who was in a same-sex relationship with xenon, there's a lot I could say, jumping off right there, the the origin and etymology of words that are now in our culture, but I'm not going to. Xenophon's second century AD novel, now we're moving into cultural literature from the Greco-Roman world. It named an Ephesian tale, depicts a young man named Hypotheses, who falls in love with another man of the same age named Hyperanthes. Hypotheses says, now, this is rated R and a little bit unnecessary, and I'm not going to say it. How many of you just praise the Lord for that? But for, it says it ends, for a long time we were passionately in love. There's also evidence of gay marriage in antiquity. They didn't have the full Roman legal status, so I'm not trying to say that they are the exact cultural equivalent of what we have today, but they were considered amongst themselves joined as spouses. Consensual same-sex loving marriages can be found among women around the time of Paul. A second century writer named Lambilicus talks about the marriage between two women named Berenic and Mesopotamia. Lucian of Samosota also mentions the marriage of two wealthy women named Magala and Damanassa. The early Christian theologian Clement of Alexandria refers to women-women marriage. And Ptolemy of Alexandria, a famous second century scholar of many trades, refers to women taking each other as lawful wives. Two Jewish documents written shortly after the New Testament refer to a time when forbidden female marriages were happening in their day. And several archaeological discoveries depict mutual love between women, including funerals, relief that dates back to the time of Augustus, where two women were holding hands in a way that resembles quite the classical gesture that resembles Roman married couples. N.T. Wright says this, As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me that they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people would regard as longer-term Reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that then as there is today. But it was by no means the only same-sex relations. They knew about the whole range of options there. I think we have been conned by Michael Foucault into thinking this is a new phenomenon. Somebody has a narrative. Paul certainly knew of enduring same-sex love, but it wasn't called homosexuality as it was a term coined in the 19th century. But the term heterosexuality was also coined in the 19th century as well. Now, talk about some sort of awareness of sexual orientation, and then we're going to get into these New Testament passages. Thomas K. Hubbard was a classicist at the University of Texas in Austin, wrote a book on homosexuality in Greek and Rome, a source book of basic documents, and it says this, the coincidence of such severity on the part of moralistic writers with the flagrant and open display of every form of homosexual behavior by Nero and other practitioners indicates a culture in which attitudes about the issue increasingly defined one's ideological and moral position. In other words, homosexuality in this era of the early imperial age of Rome may have ceased to be merely another practice of personal pleasure and began to be viewed as an essential and central category of personal identity exclusive of and antithetical to heterosexual orientation. Now, He points to a series of later texts from the 2nd to the 4th centuries that reflect the perception that sexual orientation was something that was incurable. Now, what I'm about to read is the accounts they use that talk about orientation. They were not scientific then, and they are not now. And there's a list of five reasons that they proposed A person had same-sex attraction. A mix of male and female sperm elements at conception. A disease of the mind, number two, of soul that was influenced indirectly by biological factors and made hard to resist due to socialization. A biological factor analogous to a mutated gene. Forgive me, but sperm ducts leading to the anus. Number five, the alignment of heavenly constellations. So there was this understanding that there was this category of people who seemed to be involuntarily and permanently attracted to people of the same sex. What's interesting that you have to take into account that the Jewish culture around the time of the New Testament is that there was a total Jewish rejection of same-sex relationships, clearly articulated 500 years before and 500 years after the time of Jesus Christ. This is interesting because the Jews as part of the diaspora were situated in almost every place on earth with a full awareness of culture in which they found themselves. And it was consistent Jewish practice which informs people who are Jews like Paul and Jesus about their understanding of same sex relationships. So With all of that in mind, let's now take a look at a few scriptural passages we find in the New Testament. Okay, just everybody, just a little mental break. Everybody take a deep breath. Look to somebody that you live with and blow it out. Exhale with them so you can keep your germs close by. What we just, the Bible, the the affirming progressives, the Bible, it's not real, it's not relevant because... What's going on today is quite different than what was going on then. And we see it was virtually identical at every level of society. There was um, sexual abuse, call boys, predators. And there was respectable, loving, monogamous relationships, just like we deal with today. So don't, we, we can't go. Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Because Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Romans 1, the core question of what's happening here, and does it apply to us today? Now, the context of Romans 1 is a theological tour de force by the Apostle Paul. This is the major epistle of doctrine for us today from the pages of the New Testament. Please listen. I'm running over a lot of stuff. I pray you're getting it. The context of Romans chapters one through three is important to understand because Paul is launching now into an argument that starts in Romans 1 18 and goes all the way to chapter three, verse 26. Basically saying that we're all in trouble without Jesus. We would all agree with that, right? Everybody say amen. The first part sums up the sins of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, everyone who is not a Jew. The second part accuses the Jews of being just as wicked. And the third part concludes that apart from Jesus, both Jew and Gentile are all shut up under sin. He then says what is worse is that we can't save ourselves by any of our good works or by trying to obey the law religiously. We're doomed under God's wrath. But the good news of the life-giving message of Jesus Christ comes as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's the big picture of these pages. Now, in Romans 1, there is a series of exchanges where Paul is trying to make the case to the Gentiles that they're sinful. There's one exchange of creator for creation. There's an exchange of God for the self and as an exchange exchange for that which is natural for that which is unnatural. So let's take a look at the passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, two questions we have to ask. What is the desire driving this sex? And is it natural? And number two, what is the nature of these types of same-sex relationships that Paul is referring to. Here's the progressive affirming stance, as fairly as I can offer it up. And I will say, I'm sympathetic towards some of their argument. Number one, they would say, this is not about committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. This is about heterosexual excess, perverts. It is the language of passions And lust seems to talk about people whose appetites were out of control and they were going outside of their normal heterosexual relationships in a lust-fueled desire for sexual exploration and pleasure. And it does talk about that, but not just that. Number two, it is about, they would say, that's about exploited sex. Master, slave, prostitution, cobble- it is a weird dynamic. It's a, it's a coercive culture. It's somebody's forcing themselves sexually on someone else. And this doesn't reflect committed, loving, same-sex relationships. Now listen, Paul is not critiquing same-sex love, but the abuse of power, they would say. And I think it is safe for me to say that many people who describe themselves as gay and Christian would say that when I read this passage... This is not me. And they would be right. However, the historic position of the church makes the claim that though individual people participating in this practice may not be manifesting all of the characteristics of the practice, Paul is not arguing that the motive that you enter into it, but the nature of it. The sin is against the nature as seen in Genesis Not nature based on a person's orientation or desire. So Paul's reference point about same-sex relations is found in Genesis 1 and 2. So Paul is filling his arguments in Romans 1 with undeniable allusions to the creation accounts in Genesis 1. Earlier Paul says in verse 1 through 20 that God has revealed himself since the creation of the world. In Romans 1, 25, Paul refers to God as the creator, which points the reader of Romans 1 back to Genesis 1. Again, he alerts the reader to Genesis 1 and 2 and uses gender-specific terms to describe men and women, that is, males, arson, and females, philei the same language that's used in Romans 1, verses 26 and 7, to the only other accounts found in Genesis. In Romans 1, Paul says, I'm, just to make sure everybody, we're saying, wow, we're seeing the same words and the same structure in Romans 1 that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. Romans 1, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, in the likeness of mortal mankind and birds and animals and reptiles. This verse uses five of the same Greek words used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Paul's, Paul uses five of the exact same words. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the reptiles that move along the ground. Please listen. What this passage is filled with is intertextual echoes. So as you read this passage in Romans 1, you're wondering to yourself, haven't I read this somewhere else before? And you have. Paul is basically saying, when he is talking about nature, he's not talking about a person's orientation as they understand their orientation. He's talking about nature as God has defined and created it as the creator. And it fills the languages with the Genesis accounts to make the point here. So he says, this is how God made the world according to Genesis. And you can see how the Roman culture is distorting it. They're going against nature, Paul says. Not personal orientation, but nature that God the Creator has defined it by male and female. Same sex practice is rejected because, listen, it violates the divine design in creation. According to Paul's logic, men and women who engage in same sex behavior, even if they're being true to their own feelings and desires, have suppressed. God's truth regarding male-female relations as God has designed them. So, this is not, in Romans 1, a rejection of coercive relationships, sexual abuse, and the aftermath, the effect, and the pain of living life after that. But it is a rejection of same-sex relationships. This is not about heterosexual lust, because, in verse 27 both parties were consumed with passion for one another. This is not about a power dynamic of one wanting it and one not wanting it. They are consumed with passion for one another, like we just read. A key point here that is very hard to interact with is that this amongst male relationships, there were definitely accounts of power dynamics, control, and coercion, just like today. But there's no such accounts with female relationships. This is a passage where Paul connects... I'm, I'm sorry, this is... I lost my place. This is a passage where Paul connects not just male relationships, but female same-sex relationships as well. So his critique is not these are a power dynamic. There is no power not dynamic recorded in history With female same-sex relationships, the condemnation that Paul is talking about is the fact that they're with the same sex, not the motivation for why they are. Two commentators. The honest interpreter should recognize how general Paul's language is. He doesn't describe homosexual prostitution, men having sex with boys, or reckless orgies. Nor does he bemoan the passive partner in male-male sexual encounters as many of his Greco-Roman contemporaries did. Paul doesn't draw attention to violating the social pecking order of the Roman class system as other authors did. And contrary to the opinion of modern scholars, Paul does not showcase a low view of women here. Rather, Paul uses basic terms and language of mutuality, male and female, natural and unnatural, one another to describe consensual same-sex acts. An affirming writer, progressive thinker, writes this. According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance the idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian gender is the point not orientation or exploitation or domination now the second passage of scripture we're going to get we're going to actually knock out uh actually so this is the third and fourth now this is a passage of scripture that has become cornerstone of the debate. 1 Corinthians verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. I want you to read this together. One more deep breath everybody. Now think about this. This is Paul writing, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be de- deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh oh, we all got brought into this. And that is what some of you, come on, somebody, and that is what some of you were. But thank Jesus, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, we're, these, we're going to look at one of these passages, but it's got the same issue in both of them. First Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11 says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality. I'm reading from the NIV intentionally. For slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that confirms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now, there's so much happening in this passage. Paul is speaking to the Christians in the church at a city called Corinth. He uses a challenging set of Greek words here. There's not a lot lot of context about these words He is using here, and there is a ton of conjecture about what is happening in this text and what it really means for us today. Here are the two Greek words, malakoi and arsenikoitai. Malakoi means soft. It is used in other places to describe soft material. Arsenikoitai, men who bed men or men who lie with other men. Those are the two words he uses here. This passage has been infamously translated and caused tremendous psychological harm to people who, for whatever reason, are same sex attracted. Now, everybody, I want to pause right here and I want to go quick. Everybody, look. Um, some of your Bibles say the homosexual, others say those that practice homosexuality. Look here at a the list. The, the ESV says. Men who practice homosexuality, Holman Christian Standard Bible. Anyone practicing homosexuality? I'm going to read them all. Effeminate, abusers of themselves of mankind. Effeminate homosexuals, men who have sex with men, homosexuals, sodomites, pro- male prostitutes. Those who practice homosexuality, and then male prostitutes, sodomites. You can see, wait, there is a wide range of. What are y'all? What? What are you saying? And it's very confusing. Why? Let me ask you the question. What is homosexuality? Is it an orientation, a behavior, a practice? Can you be homosexual in your orientation and not homosexual in your practice or behavior? I believe the NIV is the best translation of this passage and many scholars do too. And this is best because it puts the emphasis on behavior and not some sort of orientation. I just want to make sure everybody understands what I'm saying. The passage we read homosexuals won't inherit the kingdom of God. Poor translation. Homosexuals practicing homosexuality is what it should say. Is, there, is everybody clear on that? Now, oh man, this opens up. Like, I struggle, and we're going to talk about this the next sermon, you know, why are people same-sex attracted? We'll talk about it. I'm not going to answer it right now, but here's the deal. Um, I I have a problem, and I understand the counseling and the whole reason behind it with 12-step groups, but I have a hard time saying, hi, my name is Chuck. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Chuck. I'm an alcoholic, too. Welcome. We love you, or whatever it is that they say. I just have a hard, and again, I respect modern, healthy, sound counseling, but I just have a hard time saying it, you know, because I want to say, hi, my name is Chuck. This is not me. I'm just as hypothetical right here. Hi, my name is Chuck. I'm struggling with alcohol, but I don't plan to be an alcoholic the rest of my life. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, but what what if I... I see myself as an alcoholic, but I'm able to withstand the temptation and I'm not drinking anymore. Am I still an alcoholic? And here's the same thing. Oh, My heart is moved. I know people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I know three close friends who have been married, all three of them, for more than 25 years, and they struggled. And it wouldn't surprise me if they stood up here and say. To a degree, I still struggle. And there's reasons why they struggled in the first place. But do we understand what... Am I, everybody, I, I don't want to drill down, and, and but does everybody understand what I'm saying? So, you know, I mean, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and His grace operating in my life, it enables me to most almost... Most of the time, not sin, but sometimes I sin. Twice in the last six months, I've sinned. You know, <laughs> both times it was with Candace. Um, so pray for her. Um, in this passive, the press, progressive view makes this claim: we can't know what Paul was saying. The message is unclear, and we cannot really know what he meant. That's not true. The progressive view, there are no examples, they would say, of arsenicoiti in surviving Greek literature prior to Paul's use of the term in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy that we just read. This is them saying, we don't really know. So it's hard to get an understanding of what the scripture is saying here. The language is unclear. How can we know what we're talking about here? Secondly, This is speaking exclusively about exploitive relationships, probably callboys and male-to-male prostitution. Some scholars do agree that malakoi are callboys. And the definition is that malakoi are callboys that sell themselves as prostitutes to other men. And arsenokoitai are the men who hire them out. One is the soft, receiving partner in that relationship and the other is the, one, is the stronger, more dominant one. So the argument is that these two terms are the soft male prostitute, the receiving partner, and male same-sex relationships. And on the other side of this, you've got the one who has called them in, and by nature of these two terms are exploitive. In all honesty, we do see that there was definitely those type of relationships in Greco-Roman culture, but I do not think that is what Paul is referring to in these two passages. The language may be unclear. I don't have time to go into how there is an equivalent Hebrew term that was used related to this passage that Paul is probably taking from the Hebrew and transporting it into Greek. But it seems very clear and compelling that what Paul is doing is taking, listen to me, this is profound. He is taking two words from Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 Old Testament, hundreds of years earlier, and he's putting them together and inventing a phrase from the Old Testament referencing Leviticus and using it here in the New Testament to make the same case. And this this is not like high-level scholarship to, to discover this. Show the picture here of Leviticus 18 and 20. Here's what the relevant texts look like in the Septuagint. Let me see, do I have that here? So I want you to see this. This is so good. The relevant text look like in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by Jews in the first century. So Paul, in the New Testament, looking back, look at what the Greek says above. Meta arsenos, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Look at those two terms, arsenos and koitan. They're apart from each other. And then look at in verse 20 of chapter I'm sorry, in verse 13 of chapter 13, they're, they're perfectly positioned right next to each other. You can see from the te- second text in particular how Paul's use of arsenikoiti is almost certainly taken from the holiness code of Leviticus. So um, you can see that they literally sit next to each other. It's as though Paul referencing, listen, as a Torah-trained rabbi, the clearest commandment he can find in the Old Testament about what's happening culturally in Romans 1. Remember what we said. This is not an exploitive. This wasn't an idolatrous. This was a mutual condemnation that Paul is addressing. And he says, that was in the Old Testament. It was forbidden then. And now in the New Testament, these same behaviors are here and they are not appropriate now for the people of God. So, To say that because we don't know what these words mean culturally, except when you read the Old Testament, we see clearly what Paul is saying. Then it seems absolutely obvious what he means in these two passages. Like, let me ask you, have you ever read Shakespeare? Only because you had to, right? And it sounds like reading the King James Bible. And even, it's infused with biblical references. If Shakespeare, listen writing from a loosely biblical worldview, infused his literature with biblical references. Don't you think Paul had the rhetorical skill and knowledge and depth of Scripture as a trained rabbi who probably had the whole Torah memorized in his thinking to just grab a phrase that makes perfect sense to use in the New Testament? Many scholars say that this is a weak argument to say, that we can't really understand these words. We understand these words. We just may not want to understand them. And we may be trying to create a narrative that is very damaging. The understanding of malakoi and arsenikoitai fits with the consensus of modern English translations. It fits with the ethics of the Old Testament. It fits with the training Paul would have received as a Jewish scholar. And, most importantly, fits within the context of Paul's argument. It's as if, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is saying, Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this includes those who have sex as a part of a pagan ritual, those who have sex with someone other than their spouse, Men who play the passive role in homosexual activity and in keeping with the general prohibition found in the Torah, any male who has sex with another male. What does the Bible teach about homosexuality is where that comes from, that book by Kevin DeYoung. And there's much to say on this subject about these two passages. But we must move on and bring this to a close this morning. And I'm asking you, Did God really say? Because we're dealing with an enemy who is able to bring sophisticated sounding arguments to get you to question along with him. Did God really say? And the truth is, this is what is happening in our world. Truth is dying. And you can't even question the lie. But we must stand on the Word of God. But listen to me. We don't stand with our chest puffed out. We, we don't stand as a religious Pharisee living out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, we, we bow in humility and brokenness with tears in our eyes praying for a culture that needs a resuscitation, a miracle. Now, and as we stand, you should do this job two weeks. Seriously. Revival would break out in every church if every person just had to do what they did in the New Testament. Everybody come prepared to preach. It's what they did in the New Testament. It's what house church is all about. You're talking about everybody stepping up their game, bringing something to share with everybody. It's powerful and and as I stand the listen to me, the integrity of my heart it it will not let me just sit and let this happen and i I'm really i want I want to be careful because i in this part of as I wrap up, I don't want to preach to to a, for a response, because Lou, did you, did you get that little thing I sent? Can you pull that up from William Rohr? Did it? Did it come? Okay, let me let me read it from you for you. Oh man, now my phone. Oh, message send failure. <laughs> How many know the devil's a liar? I just sent it again, if you happen to get it. Listen to this. The innocuous mental belief systems of much religion, living out of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, are probably the major cause of atheism in the world today. Because people see that they have not generally created people who are more strong, caring, or creative than other groups. And often, those people are a lot worse. I wish I did not have to say that, but religion either produces the very best people or the very worst. Jesus makes this point in many settings and stories. And you you know... This is my heart. Brothers and sisters, I feel the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I know this is very, I don't like preaching like this. this is, I hate this right here. I'm having to stand up here and read. That's not who I am. Come back next week because I'm not typically this boring. I'm usually, I'm usually don't appear this smart. I'm, I, I'm usually dumb and entertaining, but somehow God uses it. Can I get Y'all don't have to say amen to all that. But, so I'm not preaching for a response. I, do, I want you to hear me. You're going to think I'm trying to hype you. I'm not trying to hype you. I want to say a couple things. Truth does not need defense. Give it time. Every person that's misled by these lies goes to bed every night with a hole still in their heart they know it and that's why there is such a violent response to defend the position that's the first thing I want to say the second thing I want to say is listen there is a hunger in the earth that if a church listen John chapter 1 John said in the beginning was the and the word was with God and the who is the word come on We are in this church. Paul calls us the body of Christ. The word. The word. And when the word, listen, is preached. Truthfully and gracefully. Churches either lean, bring it, preach it. That's right, they're going straight to hell. Or... Oh, I'm so sorry. And license for we love it's love, 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 love. If if we and we can, and we are, this is my heart. If we could go, oh the Bible John said Jesus came, listen, full of grace. How can you be full of one and both? He's the only one. You know how you can do that? Only when the Holy Spirit conceives you. You got capacity to be totally gracious, full of grace, and yet truthful. You all, we are on the verge of an absolute deluge of spiritual breakthrough in this community. Don't clap, I need the time. Listen. This is becoming a loving, gracious, warm, friendly, genuinely authentic Christian community like few people have ever experienced. If there, and I'm not, this isn't me, it's not you either, it's him. But it is him, and it is happening. Listen, if there were more of these places in this country, there would be a lot more people finding Jesus. Truth, grace. What do you get when you go, we're committed to truth? We're committed to grace. What do you get? John said in verse 14, We beheld His glory. That's what being a vertical church is all about. How many of you want to behold His glory? God didn't send Him into the world to condemn the world, but He didn't send Him to just love the world. He sent him to save the world. If we could continue this appetite for truth and offer grace, and even understand, oh, I want to preach 15 minutes on grace. I'm not going to. Grace is not just the free pardon of your sins, it's the unmerited favor of God. It's not just, oh, I'm forgiven. No, it's so much more than it's the response of what you feel and are now that you are forgiven. There's a divine energy, a Holy Spirit supernatural capacity that you have now. And it's the grace of God that, that equips you to, to be what God's called you to be. Oh, I want amazing grace poured out in here so that when people come, they go, oh, I'm going to hear the truth. Yes, and it's going to set you free, and we're going to walk this road with you. And brother and sister, get a good look at yourself. Get one last selfie of how you look right now, because week by week by week by week, in a year from now, you're not going to recognize yourself. Are you all out there this morning? Come on, everybody. Let's stand and give the Lord praise. Come on, if you love the Word, if you feel full in your spirit this morning because His Word is rich and true and relevant and practical and powerful, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Father, we speak over our lives, our marriages. I've used more PG-13 rated R words in the last two weeks and i have in 30 years of preaching and we need it may our sexual lives be sanctified you created it not madonna or hugh heffener you created sex and it's a beautiful thing it's an ugly thing outside of marriage it's ugly it kills it kills but within marriage according to your words your holiness code. Oh, it is truly recreating. It's recreational. It brings life, and beauty, and it replenishes the earth. Hallelujah. Oh, we praise you, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray over those that would struggle with pornography. Marriages where intimacy is is infrequent and strained and stressed. I pray for a breakthrough, Lord. I pray for women who cannot get out of their mind what their boyfriend did to them, what their ex-husband did. I pray for healing in the name of Jesus, in the mind that there would be, you would recreate and you would restore and you would redeem Oh, bless your name, Jesus. I sense his healing power in this room. I'm sorry, I just, I just, we we, we are on the verge, on the cusp of something great. I pray for men, Lord. We cast off shame and guilt. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet that need in their heart. Restore that relationship with their wife. Heal them from the shame that makes them Unable to live life and participate in marriage the way you've called them to. We bind the spirit of pornography over our children. <laughs> Come on, everybody, just lift your hands. Just lift your hands like you need to be picked up by Jesus, by His Spirit. Cleanse our smartphones, cleanse our laptops, cleanse our computers, cleanse our TVs, oh God. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Think on these things, whatever is noble, lovely, just, excellent, praiseworthy, admirable, true. Think on these things. In the name of Jesus, Lord, renew our minds. We offer our lives as living sacrifices. Make us holy and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We are to be holy because you are holy. You are our Father. And when we are rightly connected, the apple falls right under the tree. Our holiness comes from how holy you are. We bless you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. I I just, I wanna speak, I'm so sorry, but I just wanna speak fruitfulness, harmony, unity. Again, I don't mean to get rated R, but our whole world has been. Our children are not getting the truth. I'm so thankful for my marriage. I'm so thankful. I joke around that we had all these kids. I don't even like kids. We just like each other. And I joke about that, and it's partly true. I love every one of them. But the beauty of marriage, the beauty of a mind that's set free, the beauty, what MTV and Madonna and Jay-Z, and what they've done, and what it's doing to our children. In the name of Jesus, may there be Garden of Eden marriages restored. May we be naked and feel no shame may we reproduce and recreate and replenish the earth and take over the earth from the one who has taken dominion from Adam and Eve. Hallelujah. You know, a couple months ago, we had six babies born in 13 days. I'm afraid about nine and a half months from today, we might be having, we might have some Isaacs and Jacobs and Candace and I are going away this week for a couple days. Don't even think about it. Isn't it good? In the name of Jesus, here's what I want you to do. The next sermon is going to be, you're going to help me write it. Any question you have on this subject, I want you to send an email to me. And I'm going to compile, I don't know, as many as we can get through, eight or ten. Of, and I know what questions you're going to ask. But ask whatever you want. And in the next sermon, we're going to break down and I'm going to talk about how do Christians treat those who struggle with sexual issues. And so feel free and send me a question. And it's, it's confidential. It's between me and you. I won't make you stand up and ask it next Sunday in the service. All right? May the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift his countenance up on you and may he give you peace. Come on, say, I receive it in Jesus' name. Have a great afternoon. We love you.